This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. walked into a series uh, called Divine Sex, uh, and you might have thought, oh, this sounds a really interesting series for a whole number of reasons, or you might be thinking, oh my word, this sounds a highly controversial series. Um, uh, We we don't want it to be either, but we do want to try and tackle uh, at times some of the the kind of big ideas uh, uh, around uh, sex in in society. So this this week, um, we're going to talk about homosexuality and transgender, but I'm also going to try and give you, because I'm aware that some people dip in and out, I'm going to try and give you like a a quick run through of of where we've been. Um, But before we do that, let's let's pray and then we'll we'll go to work. Father, I just pray for uh, grace upon me as I speak and upon us as we hear. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be easily offended, but I pray that your grace and your goodness to us Uh, would help us. And Lord, I pray for truth. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be scared of the truth. We wouldn't be, we couldn't handle the truth. We would be in a situation where, Lord, we love your truth in a culture that's, that pushes against your truth. We pray, Lord, let truth speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I could have found loads and loads of things to, um, to kind of connect you. Oh, a couple of books. Um, This is called Transgender by Vaughan Roberts. And this is called Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Albury. I'll be quoting from them. Okay, and if, you've got, if you want to sort of look loads of books on this stuff, come and speak to me and I can give you stuff to read. But actually, this, this stuff around transgender and, and, and homosexuality and sexual orientation is all over the news. I could have found hundreds of examples. Here's two from this week. Her, Sharon Davis, a swimmer, um, is in a bit of a Twitter storm. Uh, be careful what you put on Twitter, because people feel, it's a bit like when people are in cars, uh, they, they, they would never be that rude to you if they were on the street, but if they're in their car, they feel they can be rude to you, and people do that on Twitter. So she's facing a bit of a Twitter storm, because she said this, transgender ad- athletes should not compete in female competitions in order to protect women's sport. And what, what pr- prompted that is that uh, in an over 40s uh, cycling competition in Europe, uh, the lady uh, uh, the, large, the large lady actually won the gold medal. But she's a, a lady who has, was, has transitioned from being a man. And, um, and Martina Navratilova, who's a lesbian herself, she said, this is messing up uh, sport because actually sex and gender are not the same thing. And we'll talk about what they are, but there's this huge thing about, no, what I feel my, uh, my identity, my gender is, that, that's the most important thing. And she's saying, no, no, that messes up sport. It should be what you genetically are. So this is right. Did anyone see that? Has anyone seen that? Yeah, one or two. Or this was even, perhaps even a little bit more contemporary. Uh, gay singer uh, Sam Smith, brilliant artist. Saw him on the Brits with uh, Calvin Harris singing that song. Uh, really good. Said he's, He wrote this. 
He said, um, I've sometimes questioned why I want a sex change. He said, I see myself as my own special creation. Well, that's good. We're happy with that. I'm not male or female. I think I flow somewhere in between. It's, it's all on a spectrum. I've always had a little bit of a war going on within my body and my mind. I do think like a woman sometimes in my head. So here's somebody who's expressing some of the, the tensions between kind of his, 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 his presenting sex and, and his, and his, and his, and his gender, what he feels he is in his head. And he's also, uh, also a woman who's expressing a, a, a same-sex orientation, a, a gay orientation. And so these questions are all around. And if you've never had a conversation without it, you're probably living in another planet to, to everybody else. So I just want to recap, how do we get here into this situation? So the first thing, and I spoke about this, and you can look at the podcast, uh, you can listen to the podcast. I, I talked about cultural changes. Okay, so let me just talk about where we are. So the first thing is... So, uh, if the pre-Reformation, Reformation is 500 years ago, and the Enlightenment is the 18th century, 300 years ago, around 300 years ago. And basically, the way people saw the world was church and state was the massive cultural authority. And that circle around it means it couldn't be questioned. It was like this impenetrable war, you couldn't question it. And, and, and the church and state, and sometimes marriage and husbands, told families what to do, told the individual what to do. So the individual was small, and, and the church, particularly the Catholic church, was massive. What happened with uh, the Reformation, Martin Luther said, no, you don't have to just get it straight from the Catholic church. You can go to the Bible and think for yourself. And that sowed the seeds of what's called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was where everybody says, right, you can think for yourself. So in the 18th century, we had this kind of almost a balance between the individual and the external culture, church and state. And there was this flow. So what individuals thought, uh, uh, thought for themselves, so impacted how people thought about church and state, and what the church and state and institutions impacted the individual. So we kind of had this balancing, the Enlightenment. Everyone thought it's going to go great. By the 20th century, we got to what's called expressive individualism. By this time, what's happened to the individual? The individual's massive in our culture. It's all about me. The individual's huge in our culture. And the individual is a kind of an impenetrable circle. Just like the, the church and state was 500 years ago, the individual now is kind of autonomous. The individual decides what is right and wrong. And so there's this massive flow between what I think and what I want that flows to a really diminished, certainly church, state less so, but a really diminished external culture. There's a little bit of flow back. And this was the time when, uh, so the Enlightenment was a time of, of, of perhaps emancipation of slaves, where the, the, the value of the individual, and, and this 20th century was kind of like suddenly the sexual revolution, the, the kind of, fem, uh, and also the, the, the women's rights, as were second phase feminism, where women's rights, like we need to assert ourselves on this oppressive culture. Tracking so far? So this is where I think we are now. What's happened, the impenetrable part of ourselves is no longer just the whole of ourselves, but what we call our, our inner self, what, how we perceive our inner self. And that's huge. And, and biology may or may not be relevant to who you are as an individual. And, and, and that flows out. The, the rights of the individual, or the rights of a person to say, this is who I am, flows out really strongly. But there's a subtle one, and that's why I've done it in a, in a kind of large but thinner arrow. There's, a, a, there's also a very positive but subtle flow back 
of what is acceptable culture. Uh, you know, we call it political correctness. So the individual can think or be or say whatever they want, how they feel in themselves, their autonomy, but, but there's a certain parameters. So a church leader might think, I feel different views than society about sex, marriage, homosexuality, whatever, and I will push back against this invisible force, political correctness. Whether that's right or wrong, that's the reality. Do you, do you understand that? And you feel that, don't you? If you're a Christian, you feel that in your culture. And if you're not a Christian, you might feel that, that, that it's almost the invisible hand pushing us to, to accept things without even thinking about it. Let's press in. So there's a quote from a guy called Glyn Harrison who wrote a book called Better Sex. He's a university professor from uh, University of Bristol. He said this, Radical expressive individualism in the sphere of identity means that given or received views, in other words, things coming from, from the church or the state or from faith, given or received views, are spurned or rejected in favour of self-generated def uh, definitions. We discover ourselves within ourselves, repudiating external authorities and creating our own meaning and form of life. Here the self is positioned as both creator and authority of its own destiny. Who's, who, you know, as Christians, it's a rhetorical question, who, who's the creator and authority of our destiny? God. We would say that as Christians. But our culture says no. The self is the determinant. So that's what took me 40 minutes to do last week. I thought I did that about two, a few weeks ago. And then, then last week I did this. So how do we get here? There's a biblical story going on. The biblical story begins with a wedding. Then God said, let us, God's a us, a Father, Son, and Spirit, a oneness, let us make humanity in our image and likeness. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male, female. He created them. There's a sense where maleness and femaleness are part of what it means to represent image God. Now, each individual male and each individual female, each individual represents God in terms of he's created in his image and likeness. But there's something, as I said last time, about the, the joining together of, of, of um, a man and a woman that also in, in, uh, re represents the kind of oneness of God. Father, Son, and Spirit joined as one God. And there's a role that's out here. It says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful. In other words, have lots of kids. Increase in number. Fill the earth with those kids and form it. And again, Glenn Harrison, I quoted this last time, identity, he says, is not found in the self or constructed in the self, but a gift of the self to God. So I know there's this whole self-esteem movement about where do you find your value? Why do you find your self-esteem? And I think that, that, that Glenn Harrison is saying, and the Bible would say, you find that because God crafted you in his image. That's why you find your intrinsic worth. Looking inside yourself, we talked about uh, last week, is actually can be quite a, a dangerous and dark place to go. And there's a couple of other things that we talked about that, that's quite interesting. Uh, the, the, the Bible story starts with, with, with heaven and earth. Uh, and, and so it starts with heaven and earth. And the place where heaven and earth overlapped was a garden called... Eden. Heaven is where God dwells and earth is where we dwell. 
And in the beginning, they overlapped. There was a place where God and people, God and humanity, could be together. That's interesting. So in that same chapter, right at the beginning of the Bible, God creates, uh, creates a, a, a man and a woman, and they're meant to, I, I, I use the word overlap, I think we use the word special cuddle at other kinds. They were supposed to have sex with each other. Whoop. And, and, and that overlapping is a picture of God and humanity being together. And that's quite important to understand that in the story. And I, I've read this quote, the third time I've quoted this quote, because I think we've got such a, a negative view of sex in, our, in, in churches, we're almost like, oh, oh, let's not talk about sex. I love this quote again from Glenn Harrison. God designed our desire for sex, the ecstasy we find in sex, and the sense of oneness we achieve in sex to be a picture of paradise. Heaven joined to earth. The longings for intimacy, our deepest desires, including our most earthy, bodily longings for intimacy, connect with the promise of heaven as creatures made in the image of God. We love like this because the one in whose image we are made loves like this. We are longing creatures. I love this. We are longing creatures because we long for him. Sex images our spiritual longing, our ultimate ecstasy and joy, defining oneness that we find in Jesus. And it's interesting that Steve came and talked about, about worship. There's a sense where, where worship, uh, please don't get, you know, tweet, Howard says worship is like sex. But, but there's a sense where worship is that connecting of, of heaven and earth. It's like Steve said, almost like it's an intersection of, of, of the supernatural heaven and earth. It's embodied. We don't worship just in concept. We don't just worship uh, kind of with, with, our, with our words. We worship with our bodies. We're embodied. There's a sense of that intimacy. And that longing that we have for sex, that longing we have for sex, it, it points to an ultimate longing for our relationship with Christ. And you might go, dude, my longing for sex is much more real and much more compelling than my vague longing for Christ. But that's not what the Bible puts it. The Bible says one is secondary, the longing for sex. The other, the longing for a relationship with Jesus is ultimate. Paul says this in his letter, um, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united, this sense of oneness, united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. And he says, alright, that sounds about like sex, doesn't it? He says, but I'm not talking about that. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So that's the kind of thing we're, we're, we're dealing with here. We're dealing with, with the big, big story of God and humanity. The big, big story of Jesus and his people. But actually, we said last time that we reject God and creation fractures. There's a moment where we kind of ask the question in the very first few chapters of the Bible, we ask the question... Do, do you want to follow God, or would you like to be God yourself? Would you like to have God, as it were, the external, the big circle, the big external circle, tell you who you are, or would you like to change that dynamic and draw a big circle around yourself and say, I'm going to choose who I am. They said, take this fruit and eat it, and you'll be like God. And we think, fine, I'll do that. 
So we choose self-determination. We choose to be free, thinking that God is a tyrant who's, who's desperately trying to stop us flourishing. And our culture says that still. You know, if you, how can you flourish if you're a Christian? Surely Christianity, God's all about restricting us. The lie is still around that we will be truly free. But it's a lie. Heaven and earth are driven apart. As Milton says in his poem, paradise is lost. Sex, marriage and our bodies are marred and bent out of shape. In one sense, nobody is straight. Nobody's straight. We're all marred and bent. Nobody's marriage is perfect. Nobody's sex ultimately reflects that relationship between God and his church. And the Bible ends with a wedding. And I didn't get to read this last week, but I think it's helpful to understand that I'm not just projecting this onto the Bible story. The two bookends of the story tell you what it's about. That was, that's, how, that's how kind of Jewish literature works. The, bit, the beginning and end told you what the middle was. And incluso, it tells you the beginning and end. This is how the Bible finishes. Let us rejoice and be glad for the wedding of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about Easter, the Lamb that was slain. The wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride, who's that? Us, if you're a Christian, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, given us to wear, which is kind of handy because we're a bit messed up. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, this intimate moment between God and his people. And then it says in, in 21, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Here's this picture again, God and man. A, a new heaven and a new earth, the holy city, the church, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Eden's restored. Okay, so that's the biblical theology of marriage. So let's keep going, right? So let's, let's get to the nuts and bolts now. It's really important you understand those two things. Uh, and if you haven't been around, okay, so I want to talk about uh, sexuality and identity. I want to talk about LGBTQI. If you don't know what they mean, lesbian, women have sex with women. Gay, which means which started was men having sex with men, but has now become the umbrella term for any homosexual activity. Bisexual, men and women who have sex with men and women. Transgender, people who are, feel that their internal gender doesn't match their external biology. Questioning, I'm not quite sure, that's, that's how Sam Smith, where do I fit on this? Queer, which used to be a term for abuse, but is now a term of saying, as kind of the, the LGBT movement has said, Look, let's, let's grab this and make it positive. And then intersex. Intersex are those people that are born uh, not discernibly male or female. So that may be chromosomally. You're supposed to have an X and a Y or an X and X. They, they may have some chromosomal def deficiency. Or, or, or physically, they don't have a penis or a vagina. They're intersex people. And there's about, depends on who you read and what you read, there's about one in 4,500. Uh, 4, but we need to understand, and this is where it's really challenged me, because I think that, that it's so easy to feel that this is an issue that we need to think about, like Brexit. You know, 
But actually, this, this is about people, isn't it? This is about people. This is about guys and you know at work. Or people down your street. People that you know. And I think it's so easy, and I said this before, to bunker ourselves down in our kind of Christian churches and think, they're all the horrible, bad people out there, and I don't really want to talk about it. You know, we might even react to that picture, ooh, I just don't feel comfortable. And as I've been preparing and reading lots and lots on this, and man, how much stayed on the cutting room floor, it challenged me. Because I think this is about, we often felt this is about an issue that we need to address rather than people that we need to love. What would we do? I'll just propose it now. What would we do if a gay couple came and were part of this church? How would we feel about that? How would we respond? It's so easy to be one way, too much truth, not enough grace. Or to have lots of grace but duck the truth. Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. So we're going to talk about that one first. Okay, so the first thing is everybody, whether you're uh, everybody gay, uh, les- uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, we're all messed up sexually. But <laughs> we're all messed up sexually. I don't know if anyone saw this meme. Did anyone see the meme? Not the one on the, not the picture from the movie. Uh, anyone see that meme? It was an Italian photographer who just snapped this picture and he put it on, uh, on his Twitter account or his Instagram, and, uh, on his Instagram account and it went viral. Why is it funny? Well, it's not, is it? Depends who you are in the story. But it, 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 it's, it's deeply challenging, but it's really exposing of the reality of what it's like. Yeah? So he, the guy has a look. He's with his girlfriend, wife, partner whatever phrase you want to use, and he looks and thinks, yeah, we've all done that. You're alive, you say you haven't. And it might be a lot worse than you've done. You may have looked, as I talked about last week, at things that are much more prohibited than that. And there's nobody in here whose sex isn't, is, is, is straight, as we can say. Not anything challenging about it. So we're not saying like, okay, if you're heterosexual straight here, you're fine. And what we're going, what we're putting in the crosshairs is we're after the homosexuals. No. Jesus, a woman comes to Jesus, and again, I mentioned this because it's such an incredible story. A woman comes to Jesus, is brought to Jesus by the kind of religious elite, you know, uh, uh, aka, let's say we've got a transgender person here, or we've got a homosexual here. We've got a woman who's sinned sexually. She's brought by the religious people to Jesus, and they say, stone the woman. The story's brilliant, doesn't it? Because he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. I've asked you this question before, so you shouldn't know the answer. Who in that crowd was without sin? No one. No one apart, the only person without sin in the whole was who? It was Jesus. And what does he say? I don't condemn you. Grace. Go and sin no more. Truth. Such a lesson we have to learn. So what I've chosen, as we talk about this, I've chosen what, I, what I've called, or what I called, same-sex attracted um, pastors. 
So this guy, Vaughan Roberts, leads a great church called St. Aldate's in, in, in Oxford, and he's same-sex attracted. Gay, you could say. Same-sex attracted is the phrase. Sam Albury, again, in Maid, uh, a pastor in Maidenhead, same-sex attracted. I feel there's an empathy and an understanding that they have on this situation that I don't have. Another guy, same-sex attracted pastor. We'll, we'll unpack that phrase in a moment, but just bear with me. A guy called Ed Shaw from Bristol said this. He's asking the question, why do I experience same-sex attraction? He says, really profoundly, it wasn't my choice. I used to think, they just chose They've just chosen this because they're just the sinful people. I'm a stone thrower, or I was. It was my choice, or my parents. You know, Freud says, hmm, they've had their parents' parenting's messed up. Or my past. They must have had some sort of abuse or some issue in their past. Or my genetics. He says, actually, the existence of a gay gene really is an urban myth. That means you all believe it. That's what urban myth means. But if you dig into it, it ain't there. He says, some want to make this a blame game. Others still maintain uh, there's nothing wrong. I see my same-sex attraction as part and parcel of what it is for us all to be marred image bearers of God. Something I can't do much about myself. But at the same time, I'm responsible to God for how I respond to it and whether I act upon it. So you might have a really bad temper. Immediately you're thinking, what, you're accusing being homosexual like a bad temper? No, it's an example, okay, bear with me. You might have a really bad temper. You might have a violently bad temper. And you, you didn't choose to have a violently bad temper or it wasn't a, a product of your upbringing, you just got this bad temper. But to act on it or not is your choice. So whether things are inherent in us, and, and Ed Shaw was saying, I, I, I felt it was. If you listen, it's a, a website called Living Out, talks about these issues. He, he, he felt, I never made this choice. But I've all, I have got a choice on whether I act on it or not. Sam Albury says this, uh, another same-sex attracted from Maidenhead says, everybody has views on who sleeps with who. Uh, one guy actually said, why does God care who you sleep with? Do you care who people sleep with? It's not a rhetorical question. You can, nod, you can say yes or no. Do you care who people sleep with? You see, we're not quite sure we're allowed to say yes, are we? If you're married, do you care who your spouse sleeps with? If it ain't you. Do, do you care who your kids sleep with? Does it matter? If you sleep with your mom, or you sleep with your kids. We do care, don't we? We all care about who people sleep with. It's, it's a lie to say there are no boundaries anywhere. There are boundaries. Some boundaries that were, were there in society are no longer there, but some boundaries are, strong, are more strongly there. The people are vilified. And they say, well, it's, they don't choose to be this way. He says this, everyone cares who we sleep with. But every time the Bible addresses homosexual sex, God opposes it. 
But it's not that the Bible condemns all homosexual activity and approves any or every sexual act between heterosexual people. That's sometimes how I think how it can be presented, as if the Bible's anti-gay, the Bible doesn't, it prohibits every homosexual act, which it does, but, that, the, 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 but people here, the converse is that every heterosexual act is fine, and that's not what the Bible's saying. Sam, Sam Albert says that's not what it's saying. It's far more challenging than people think. God is opposed to all sexual activity as outside the lifelong faithful commitment of heterosexual marriage. That's the boundary. Why, says Vaughan Roberts, the distinction between a man and a woman reflects, and we've said this before, reflects the distinction between God and humanity. The heaven and earth imagery is brought into intimate reality by the union of Christ and his church, that's those who trust in him, as a bridegroom with his bride. This can only be imaged by the difference of the two sexes. Two men or two women can't reflect the marriage of Christ and his bride. The image requires the union of two distinct and different but complementary others. The sameness of homosexual sex is a rejection of this truth. So why does God draw the lines for sex within the faithful relationship of marriage? Because that faithful relationship of marriage represents his faithful relationship with us and our faithfulness to him. That's why in a wedding you say, all that I am, I give to you, forsaking all others. That's the nature of God's relationship with us. And that's why he draws the lines around who you sleep with. So is being gay a sin? Some Christians say being gay is a sin. But when they say gay, he says, what a great name, Preston Sprinkle. <laughs> he put on Twitter this morning, he went to Starbucks and they said, what's your name? He says, Preston Sprinkle. And they go, no, really? Preston Sprinkle, he's from New York. Some Christians say that being gay is a sin. But when they say gay, they typically mean sexual lust, gay sex, and affirming same-sex marriage. However, the term gay simply means attracted to people of the same sex. It doesn't have to include an active sex life. Temptation is not a sin. This means that being gay is not a sin, says same-sex attraction is not a sin. In other words, if, if you're here and you feel same-sex attracted, it's not a sin. It's not a sin. The temptation to act on that same-sex attraction is not a sin. But to give in to that temptation would be the same as me giving in to the temptation to have sex or to look at porn or whatever outside my marriage. And that is a sin. Is that helpful? Yeah. Temptation is not a sin. Some people might think you're far too liberal. I'm leaving the church. <laughs> and some might say, Man, you're not liberal enough. I'm leaving the church. I think that's a helpful place to be. <laughs> not that you're all going to leave. Okay, let's, let's push on. I think there's a, something about sexuality that, that's practiced. I had people, and I'm not going to name them, I've had people come to me in church settings and say, I'm same-sex attracted. 
Often those would be guys, and they'd probably be guys in, in their, you know, 18, 19, 20. And I've not gone, oh my word, out the church you go. I've said, okay, well, that's not a sin. How are we going to work with that? They've usually come and talked to me because they, they don't want to act on that impulse, but they feel the pressure. And I've always said to them that sexuality is plastic. And um, a, a scientific review called the New Atlantis that I'm going to quote from says this. Some longitudinal studies, in other words, taking people over a number of years, of adolescents suggest that sexual orientation may be quite fluid over the life course of some people. With one study estimating that as many as 80% of male adolescents who support same-sex attractions no longer do so as adults. So it actually can be quite typical, more for males than for females, for you in your adolescence, while you're thinking about who you are, to think, am I same-sex attracted? So Andrew Wilson, not the Andrew Wilson in this church, uh, just in case he feels pressure under the coffee, Andrew Wilson is a great Bible teacher. Uh, he, he talked about, he was at public school, whether... You know, I didn't go to public school, whether that does that to you, but it's not about that really. Um, he went to public school and expressed, I'm same-sex attracted. He said from about 14 till about 21, he wanted to be intimate with men. Now, he's married now, so some people would say, well, he's just pretending. He's really gay and presenting as heteronormative because that's easier in society. But he would say that his sexuality wasn't fixed, it was plastic. But we also mess with our sexuality at our peril. There was a, a program on Channel 4 called Porn in the Brain. I didn't watch it, but found a little quote from it. said this. It's really interesting. It talked about how porn wires your brain, and we talked about this last time, so we're talking about how sex sexuality is in your brain is plastic. Changes to the reward centre of your brain, that's the dopamine bit, means that you will compulsively seek out the sexual high that triggers the release of dopamine. So I remember one time, my, my, one of my boys came to me and said, I'm really, really sorry, Dad, I've been searching for pictures on the internet, and I'm thinking... Okay, brace yourself, what's coming? He said, I've been looking at Cheryl Cole in her bikini. Now, we might think, well, that's no big deal. But actually, for where he was, that was triggering a dopamine response. There was a survey that was done some years ago uh, about pornography where they got some students and said, right, okay, we're going to look, we'll lock you in separate rooms uh, uh, and you can look at porn, and nobody's going to know what you look at. No, nobody, we're not going to tell anyone what you're looking at, we're just going to monitor what you're looking at. We're not going to watch you, whatever, you do what you want. And they, they did this for like two and a half weeks, it was in the state somewhere. They did it for two and a half weeks, and what was happening was that they, the, the, the porn they're looking at got harder and harder core, more and more extreme. And when they asked them afterwards, how did you feel? A lot of them said, I'm shocked where I went when I took the boundaries off. You build up a tolerance and more stimulation is needed to get the same effect. You can push sexual preferences to the extreme. So I'm not saying, please don't hear me, I'm not saying that, 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 that 
you know, that, that people who, who struggle with, with homosexuality have let it, let it go. But the reality is the more you act on that impulse, the more you work on that impulse, the more you satisfy with that impulse, the more it's embedded in you. Do you, are you tracking what I'm saying? So what I'm saying really is that if you're not married, and Stan so, spoke so brilliantly about, uh, about singleness, and basically what Stan was saying is, if you're single, you've got to be celibate. And we struggle with that. We think, okay, so I'm same-sex attracted, I, I, but I don't want to act on it because I want to follow Jesus. And he says, that's not the place and context for sex. Well, how do you do it? And we think, how can I be fulfilled without sex? Because sex has replaced God in the place of fulfillment. And Ed Shaw, again, the guy I quoted from Bristol, says this. I think this is a helpful quote. He says, The aberration of our generation to equate the absence of sexual pleasure with the absence of full personhood, the denial of being or the deprivation of joy. In other words, if you're not having sex, you can't be a full person. Because sex is the ultimate. And I can't be fulfilled without sex. But we know that Jesus was single and celebrate and is held up as the only perfect human to ever lived. In Jesus you see life to the full and his was a life without sex. That is really hard. If you're single, that whether heterosexual or homosexual, same-sex attracted or not, it's really hard to say you're not going to have sex. It's very hard. Because we think, our culture tells us that ultimate flourishing is about having sex. I read this amazing quote in The Guardian. Now, anybody know where The Guardian's coming from on sex? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty liberal. In fact, I stopped buying the midweek. I, I, I still would read The Observer, but I stopped buying the, 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 the midweek paper because it's like, it was just like so liberal. Uh, even me, in my liberalness, couldn't cope with it. But this is a guy called Adam Wilder. He's not a Christian. He's a, he's, he's a sociologist. And he wrote... Uh, in The Guardian in April uh, 2017, an incredibly interesting article. Sex and intimacy, he says, are closely connected. Since the sexual revolution of the 1960s, the focus has been more and more on sex and less and less on intimacy. Of course, you can have sex without intimacy. Just as you can have intimacy without sex. Then he says this profound thing, intimacy, not sex, is fundamental. You can have had many lovers. You have not ever had something as fundamental as true intimacy. It's not about how much sex you're having. It's about intimacy. The holy grail is intimacy. Intimacy is the real taboo of our society, not sex. It's the thing we fear because it's about taking off the mask that so many of, many of us hide behind. It's the key to being freer and happier and more alive. The gospel, the gospel is basically saying you can have intimacy. You can have intimacy. You can have intimacy with Jesus. You can have closeness and intimacy in relationship and friendship and family. But we've, we've collapsed intimacy into sex. But actually, sex and intimacy are not the same thing. Intimacy is what we're after. And so, so Jesus would have incredible intimacy in our society. struggles with that. says, surely he must have been having sex with Mary Magdalene. Let's make a movie about it. But no, he had deep intimacy. 
He had friendship, like real friendship. Jesus says this, deny yourself. Amazingly challenging. Jesus said to them, all, all, whoever wants to be my follower, my disciple, must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet lose their very self? Actually, every Christian, every follower of Jesus is asked to give up something to follow Jesus. If you haven't asked, if you haven't responded to that, then are you a proper Christian? If Christianity is not inconvenient, are you a proper Christian? If it doesn't mean that some of your desires and some of your pleasures and some of your things you have to say no to, and you have to be sacrificial instead of selfish, then, then Jesus is saying, are you following me? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, The cross of Jesus is laid on every Christian. Each must experience the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old life which is a result of our encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We begin, we give our lives over to death. Thus it begins. The cross meets us at the beginning of intimacy with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Transgender, some definitions have already talked about these. Uh, that's called the, gen- the, the gender bread man. Uh, you can find him online. Seriously, I didn't do it. I thought it's excellent. Genderbrain man. And he talks about the different things. Your identity is in your brain. Your attraction is, he says, in your heart. Uh, your, your sex is in your genitals. And the expression is what you wear, how you dress, how you walk, whatever. Okay. So some definitions. Sex is about biological differences. And I've said that one in 4,500 4, are visibly intersex. Gender identity is a person's internal sense of male or female, so non-binary. Transgender is a person whose sense of gender identity does not correspond with their assigned sex at birth. I don't like the word assigned, because it kind of implies that, they, that the doctor looked and said, oh, shall we make him a man or a woman then? And that's not really what happens, is it? Sex is recognised rather than assigned, but Stonewall talks about sex being assigned. And transsexual is a person who's transitioned to express the gender other than their birth sex. I found this quote by... Uh, a, uh, an Asian guy from New York who's, who's now called Andrea says this gender dysphoria feels like una- gender dysphoria is where you feel that you're a man's body, sex but you've got a, a woman's gender identity do you, do you understand that? yeah yeah or, or the other way around it's the, there's this mismatch, dysphoria is like a disconnect Gender dysphoria feels like being able, unable to get warm. No matter how many layers you put on. It feels like hunger without appetite. It feels like always grieving whilst have nothing to grieve. That's horrible, isn't it? Imagine that situation where inside, not because you've chosen it or because of your parenting, whatever, but because of the world is fallen and broken, inside you feel this, but outside you feel that. It's not a nice place to be. It's a horrible place to be. But as as I said a few weeks ago, we all have disordered minds and bodies. We all have a bit of dysphoria. We see a little bit in Genesis when they reject God. It says, Adam, they, Adam and Eve, ate the fruit and their eyes were opened. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. 
And Sam Albury says, we feel not the euphoria we were promised. It's almost like sex promises this euphoria. Freedom, absence of God's rules, promises euphoria, says, but we, but we feel dysphoria. All of us feel naked and ashamed. We all, in some ways, mentally struggle with our bodies. Okay, let's read from the Atlantis. The identity that gen, the, the hypothesis that gender identity is intimate, fixed property of human beings that are independent of sex, that a person might be a man trapped in a woman's body, a woman trapped in a man's body, is not supported by the scientific evidence. But yet what happens, it's interesting, when, Kate, when, when Bruce Jenner, who was the athlete, the, 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 the medal-winning athlete, when he transitioned and, 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 and posed on the cover of Vanity Fair... What do you notice about how she, Caitlin, is now posing? Very, very feminine. So feminism says we don't want gender stereotypes, but it's almost like transgender is, is bending to gender stereotypes. I feel I'm this way. I feel I need to present this way. And you notice this about people that are transitioning, that they, that they, that they, 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 they really hold on to gender stereotypes. And one of the things that can happen with, with kids and stuff is that, that, you know, if a kid's like, if he's a little boy and he's playing with dolls and wants to wear a dress, then, then he must be internally, his internal gender must be, he must be a female. And actually, it's about gender stereotypes. I'm with the feminists who say, actually, gender stereotypes need to be resisted because they're oppressive. But it's almost like transgender has allowed those, those gender stereotypes to shape how they view the world. So there's this massive search for salvation. The salvation for a transgender person is they need to transition. They'll either transition by taking uh, uh, hormones, they'll transition by, by taking pills that, that, suppress, that suppress testosterone and release estrogen or vice versa. And, and so they, they take hormones. And, and actually I think it's really frightening that, that kids in school are often being prescribed that. And some even prescribed before puberty. Well, 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 well their sexuality is still fluid. I find that quite shocking. And I think 10 years from now we'll go, well, did we do that? A bit like we used to give homosexuals like chemical crustacean. We'd say, did we do that? The guy, Andrew Long, in the New York Times article that I quoted from earlier, says this. I found this sad. It says, next Thursday I will get a vagina. The procedure will last about six hours and I'll be in recovery for at least three months. This is what I want, but there's no guarantee it will make me happier. In fact, I don't expect it to. That shouldn't disqualify me from getting it, though. My body will regard the vagina as a wound. As a result, it requires pain, regular, painful attention to maintain. The, the tragedy uh, of transgender is that inside I feel this, so that, that I'll change my body and be happy. And I think that's so, so sad. We can do that in some ways, you know, obsessive of visiting the gym, change my body and I'll be happy. But we know it's a lie. Again, the New Atlantis said this, uh, compared to the general population, adults who have undergone sex reassignment surgery continue to have a higher risk of experiencing poor mental health outcomes. Studies, studies found compared to controls, sex reassigned individuals were about five times more likely to attempt suicide and 19 times more likely to die by suicide. If a transgender person is in this church, how do you now feel? You should feel compassion, eh? 
You should feel compassion. And I've pointed a finger so much and think, I hate this. I hate the way it's crept up on us. And, but actually, we should feel compassion because this is hard. We had a, 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 be careful again, you're going to misunderstand me. We had a lady who lived with us, me and Naomi, who lived with us, had anorexia. Anorexia is this internal sense that I'm fat when your body says not. The worst thing the medical profession could have done was affirm her anorexia. Do you agree? But yet we've got a medical profession that continues to affirm this inner self sense of self. And I'm not saying that, that, that that's not easy. And we're not talking about intersex people here. We're talking about people who have got the full chromosomes, the full genitalia. So where's this search for salvation gone? And you're going to get a new body. Everybody's going to get a new body. Paul says this in Colossians. He says, Yet now God has reconciled you. It's almost reconciliation is this kind of sense of this brokenness, this dysphoria, this disconnect, and now you've been reconciled. Reconciled to God, reconciled to yourself, reconciled to each other. Now you've reconciled through the, the death of Jesus Christ's body of flesh. As a result, he's brought you into his own presence and you will be, so you're complete and spotless and you stand before him without fault. Because of what Jesus has done, my brokenness and your brokenness and our mental challenges and our physical challenges and our, our sense of dissatisfaction with who we are is all going to go. We're going to stand before him spotless, without a fault. We're not going to have that sense of brokenness that God's going to make it new. Sam Albury says this, the only hope for our brokenness is the ultimate brokenness of Jesus' own body. He knew what it was for his body to cause him immensurable pain. Isaiah 53 says the appearance of his body was so marred that people couldn't bear to look at him. There was no greater dysphoria than when the righteousness, the righteous one took our sin in his own body. His one marred and his body's messed up so much so that it represents our brokenness. Physically, our internal brokenness. Here's, a, here's Jesus with a, with a, with a body that's, that's, that's out of order with the universe, full, full of our, our, our brokenness and sin, and yet inside he's, he's righteous and full. His, he suffers it all. The answers in all this, and it's not simple, and I've already talked for a long, long time, and I apologise, I think, Flip, let's find an easier series next time. Um, but the, the answers to these are not simple. But, but my appeal is that, that actually the way that God's designed the world and the way that, that God is healing the world and the way that God's transforming the world is the way that the world will be whole. I've seen over the last 50 years the world has not got more whole. The world has got more broken. And there's more finger pointing, and there's more judgment and there's more shame. 
And I want you to know, whatever you are, wherever you are with your sexuality, whatever you are, with you feel a sense of gender dysphoria, I, I want you to feel that the love of Christ is here for you. That when you come and break bread, that, that actually you, you, it says Jesus took bread and that is betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And I've talked so many times about this that you can almost like, you can forget the impact of it. It's a broken body. This is, this is dysphoria. This is a body out of shape, limbs and flesh ripped apart. This is, this is a, a body that's seemingly messed up. We're going to talk in a few weeks about the godless cross when we move up to Easter, but there's a sense of the, the horror of it reflects the brokenness of our lives. All of us. And if you're a Christian, God says, come and take and be filled. Be made new, be transformed. It says, after supper, Jesus took the cup after giving it to his disciples. He said, this is my blood shed for you. This is his very life. I need his life in me. Jesus says, you must be born again. We need a, a transfusion of his life, don't we? All of you daily need a transfusion of his life to say no to that and yes to him. To deny ourselves and say, I, I take up this cross to have your life. To lose my life that I might have yours. If you're not a Christian this morning, then this meal is not for you. Not because Jesus chooses to exclude you, but because you choose to exclude yourself. But I want you to come. If you want to become a Christian, come and take this for the first time and grab somebody and say, please pray with me. If you're struggling with all kinds of issues, come and say, please pray with me. But for all of us, and this is how we're going to, we're going to finish, for all of us, I, I want us to be filled with the grace of God to love a broken world. I found it really challenging because my kids have said you're such a homophobe. And as I've read and read, I thought, God, I'm sorry that I so lack your grace. And I want us to be well overwhelmed by the grace of God. And I do apologize that I've gone on. But I want us to live this, eh? Do you want to? Let's take and eat and be satisfied. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.